crowds. He knew that the crowds acclaim on Palm Sunday could turn into a lynch mob by Good Friday. One of my favorite gospel passages is John 6. Jesus had just performed that incredible miracle of feeding the 5,000. And it says the next day the crowd found him on the other side of the sea. When Jesus saw them, he said, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And that bread that I will give him for the life of the world is my flesh. Then the Jews disputed among themselves. How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the son of man, And drink his blood, you will have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. When many of his disciples heard it, I'm not sure what they quite understood about this. But they knew it wasn't too good. And they scared them. This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? And the scripture says at the end of John 6, after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. When the crowd heard the hard sayings of Jesus, many turned on their heel and walked away. Jesus didn't trust the crowd. So jostled and dispressed by the unruly and fickle crowd, what did Jesus do? He pivoted. He began to change his focus. He called a smaller group of people to himself. Jesus Jesus began to pour himself and his teaching into a smaller band of disciples. Now, so let's look at the second part of our uh, passage today. And he went up on the mountain and called to them whom he desired. And they came to him. And he appointed 12 who who also named apostles. Now, I think that this is really two groups of people here. The first verse, verse 13, is a larger group than the 12 that he focused on for a special task. And he appointed the 12 so that they might be with him and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the 12, Simon and Peter and James and Zebedee and the rest. Luke's gospel tells this same story, but includes something important. It says, in those days, he went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples and chose from them 12 whom he named apostles. Jesus knew he had reached a critical point in his mission. He knew his earthly ministry would not be long. He knew he had to prepare a group of disciples to carry on his mission. They needed to be prepared. So he prayed all night. Father, I'm going to choose disciples and apostles to become the foundation of the church. I need your guidance and your wisdom.
I, as I said, I think there's two groups of people in this story. A larger group of followers whom he called out of the crowd as disciples. And the group of 12 he chose as apostles. Jesus preached about the kingdom to the crowd. He preached a message about himself, about his mission, about repentance and forgiveness. Some from the crowd responded. He called them to become his followers, his disciples. I see this call in two dimensions. The the first is the call to Christ himself in faith. It's the call to personal faith. The second is the call to mission, to the call to what it is that we're to do as individuals in work in the kingdom. Over 50 years ago, as a young teenager, I remember the growing sense that I was being called by Jesus to faith in him. I resisted for a while, maybe a year. Then I swallowed my pride and I made a profession of faith in Christ as my personal savior. I vividly remember two things that hit me out of the blue. One was the incredible sense of joy and the other was a deep hunger to read the Bible. I had never felt anything like this ever before. It was weird. I couldn't get enough of the Bible. Have you made that personal decision of faith? Jesus is calling you. Have you said yes? Are you saying yes? Will you say yes to following him? Later, near the end of my sophomore year in college, I experienced another crisis of faith. I had begun to question God, the scripture, the Christian faith. Did God really exist? Was my faith real? I had my doubts. I grew up in a conservative Mennonite family and church. I knew that I did not agree with all the external lifestyle things that... uh, I was taught, but maybe the core of the Christian faith was not valid either. I wasn't all that wild. Well, maybe I was, and I won't go there. (laughs) Two things happened to me at that time. Uh, One was I I met and, and became friends with and was influenced by two committed Christian students, Dan and Mary. They both challenged me to, by their words and example, to renew my faith. Second was, I was invited by a Madison College. That's back in the days when it was called Madison College, before 1977. <clears throat> uh, by a, a friend that was involved in the university chapter there, to a weekend conference in North Carolina. And I said, no. And he said, most of the students at the Madison University chapter are girls. And most of them don't have cars and you have a car. So I said, yes. (laughs) Uh, I dated one of those girls for about a year. She was from New Jersey. Seriously. Uh, My eyes were opened at that weekend. I met students from ODU and University of Richmond, Virginia Tech, and VCU and Duke and UNC, other places, who possessed a strong faith. 
These Christians were different. They were thoughtful and they were excited about Jesus. And they weren't weird. I saw Christians who comfortably engaged their culture with the gospel. Uh, Before my sophomore year ended, I remember wrestling with God for most of the night. Uh, Finally, uh, finally saying yes to Jesus as a young adult. This experience was life changing. My identity and focus have never been quite the same since. Perhaps you are finding yourself drifting away from Christ. His call is to return to him in repentance and faith once again. The second call I think is a call to vocation, to mission, to ministry. It's a, it's a call from Christ to follow him in your work and profession. The call to the 12 apostles was a call to a special ministry in the kingdom. I think we could say their call was unique in church history. <clears throat> they were to hold a special position of authority as apostles. For some of us, the call to service in the kingdom is a call to full-time ministry. Would you agree that God has called Aubrey to this kind of ministry? Or Kevin? Kevin's in the midst right now of the discernment process leading potentially to ordination in the Anglican church. It's a very serious process. And some of us have been involved with him in that. Him Helping him to discern, is this God's call in my life. I think that's a very special call, and I honor that. Uh, when I graduated from college, I sensed God's call to full-time student ministry within a varsity. I was the first IV staff to live in Harrisonburg and to work at what was then Madison College. In those days, I traveled to Virginia Tech and Radford and helped start the U- University of Virginia chapter up again. And after three years, Esther and I moved to Atlanta, where I was the area director for InterVarsity and eventually the regional director for the South. But for many of us, the call to vocation or ministry is different. It's a call to do kingdom work in our jobs. Daniel was called to serve in the Babylonian government. He's kind of like a cabinet member or a prime minister. I, don't, I have not seen in the book of Daniel a mention about him going to church or synagogue. I guess he did. But his focus was his work and how God called him to serve God in a very special way in government. And he did that in a remarkable way. You see, Jesus came to restore creation from its current state of rebellion and distortion and perversion back to the beauty and glory of God's original creation. Our world is distorted and partially wrecked by sin and rebellion against the creator. To do kingdom work is to engage in culture and professions to seek to renew and restore them aligned with the creator's intention. God has called us each to a corner of the world to do his kingdom work. It's like a homesteader back in the 1800s staking out that territory. We're called to stake out our territory in the kingdom of God to do God's work. For some of this, this means a call to full-time Christian ministry, such as a pastor or missionary or maybe university staff. Uh, 
But for most of us, Jesus' call is to something more ordinary in education or law or finance or construction or homemaking or art, you name it. So how are these two calls related? The call to faith, the call to ministry and vocation. Uh, I think N.T. Wright uh, connects these two very well. And if you don't mind, I'm going to read a passage from his book called Simply Good News. Uh, To understand Aubrey's preaching, you need to read some of N.T. Wright, by the way. But how does the good news of the death and resurrection of Jesus... And the good news that this was for our sins and in accordance with the scriptures turn out to be the good news of the new creation. How are these things joined together? The answer is simple and revolutionary. God wants to put humans right to put the world right. And the good news that this too has been accomplished through Jesus. The good news, therefore, is that when humans are put right, the project can get back, put back on track. Not all at once, of course, just as we humans are not put right completely and forever at a stroke. But this is the goal. Now, I worked uh, in full-time Christian ministry within a varsity for 10 years. As I grew in my understanding of who I was, my gifts, an interest in calling, I gradually came to the conclusion that I should move on from university ministry to some aspect of the business world. This was not an easy decision. I enjoyed the work for the most part. Most importantly, I understood clearly how I was serving in God's kingdom. I was discipling students and doing evangelism and organizing Christian student training. What could be clearer in terms of meaningful Christian ministry. But if I left staff, it wasn't so clear how I would be serving God in the kingdom. Most of our friends supported this decision, but one friend in my church who happened to be doing full-time campus ministry with a different uh, uh, organization, he sought me out. And he said he was disappointed that I was throwing away all my experience and training in campus ministry. I was not listening to God if I was planning to leave in varsity. Well, what a dilemma, because he had some points. But I had a growing sense that service in God's kingdom did not mean full-time Christian ministry for me. So I left staff. I obtained an, MD, uh, an MBA degree. And um, due to some friendships in the industry, I ended up in the uh, uh, business of insurance and then financial planning. So how do you serve God in business? What opportunities have I found to do kingdom work? For me, part of it, but not all by a long shot, was to serve in the church uh, within the first year after Staff, a former university staff friend of mine, Clyde Wiley, who was staffed down in New Orleans, had gone off to seminary and was caught, had been called by the Atlanta Presbytery to start a new church. And he approached Esther and I, and he says, uh, 
I'm, I want to plant, I've been called to plant this church in the fastest growing county in uh, the state of Georgia at that time. Would we join him in this new venture? So we said yes. What an exciting adventure in the next 13 years that was. Building committee chairman, elder, small group meetings in our house that kind of became a large group. Adult Sunday school, missions committee, hosting the first Young Life meeting for the local high school in our home. We found many opportunities in kingdom work. But kingdom work is much larger than just service in the church. In my profession as a financial advisor, how do I do kingdom work in that? How can I encourage clients to be generous? How can I help them be good stewards of their wealth? How should they engage their children in these same issues? Discussions of money, I have found, is often an emotional issue. Did I counsel students when I was on IV staff? Yes. Do I have a box of tissues in my office now? Yes. A quick story. A few, a few weeks ago, a couple came into our office to meet with my younger associate and partner, Daniel. The next day, he came into my office to tell me the story. 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 The husband is a school teacher and is planning to retire this June. He described his financial situation. He needed help to make some wise decisions about his retirement options. They had previously seen two other financial advisors. The couple were uneasy about recommendations from these other firms. What they were being told to do seemed risky to them, but they were not sure. Daniel carefully reviewed their options he decided it was unrealistic and, re- and risky to follow these other options. These are other recommendations. Bottom line, Daniel's advice was to apply for full retirement benefits, buy insurance through the employer, retire with some peace of mind, and don't we, anything we would do would make it less helpful in their situation. We could not improve his options. Their response, tears of gratitude from the wife. They found someone they could trust who was looking after their interests first. I was proud of Daniel. That is kingdom work in my profession. Many of you, I am sure, have your own stories of what it means to stake out territory in the kingdom in redeeming your area of work and service. Finally, let's take a look at these 12 apostles. Two sets of brothers, four fishermen, a tax collector, a zealot, a doubter, two hotheads, several nobodies, a traitor. What can we say about these men? First, they were ordinary folks. Jesus didn't scour the country looking for highly accomplished and educated people. He didn't. These men were not from the elite of society. Look around you. Wouldn't you say the same is true of our group? Nothing special. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise. 
according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. God uses those who answer his call to turn the world upside down. He can use each and every one of us to make a difference in our homes and jobs and community. Second, they were young. Jesus was about age 30, we think. And probably the men that he called around him were his age. Maybe Aubrey thinks even as early as young as 20 to 30. They needed time with Jesus to grow and mature. But the early church was founded by and large by young people. I I have a concern about about this church. Uh, two-thirds of the parish council are over 60. Uh, that's good. That's great. A lot of wisdom. In fact, now that Elkton is kind of restructured, it's like three-fourths of us. Uh, so how does Church of the Incarnation develop and encourage younger leadership? How can folks like me create space for younger leaders? One way God did this in the early church was all these, except for John, most of these men met an untimely death and martyrdom. Now, I'm not really hoping that that's what happens here. (laughs) Uh, After the last eight days, I say, God, you know, uh, I'm not ready for that. The parish council is discussing and praying about how we can find ways to develop leadership for the future. And I fully expect that this will happen. I encourage you, I'm talking about younger folks, to be open to call to leadership in our church. I'm delighted to see students and young couples and all of you young believers out there seeking ways to serve the kingdom and the church. And I think the the future looks bright for our church. Uh, The third thing I would say about this group of men is that they were diverse. Matthew was the establishment guy, you know, the IRS guy. Simon the the Zealot was like a revolutionary. James and John, I mean, they were capitalists. Their, Their father, Zebedee, was mentioned many times in the Bible, which probably means he was very prominent and wealthy and a leader. And they owned their own boats. It wasn't like they just kind of went out there fishing a little bit. They had their own business. Nathaniel was the thinker, and Peter was the doer, and Andrew and Philip were evangelists. Look around you. Let me ask you, would you hang around most of these people if God hadn't called you together here? I think that's a wonderful strength of our church is the diversity of background and experience. I love the diversity in our church. Let's celebrate our various gifts and grow in our interaction with believers different from ourselves. Lastly, this group of men, they needed time with Jesus to grow and mature. They kept on getting it wrong. Often they didn't understand. Sometimes they wanted to head off in the wrong direction. 
But Jesus taught them, and he mentored them, and he prayed for them, and he led them. I think the intern program that Aubrey and CJ have structured in our church is very exciting. It's groundbreaking, really. If there's anyone listening to me this morning that's kind of at that stage of life thinking about post-college, consider this. A year of training in ministry doesn't mean you become a preacher. But it's an opportunity for training and growth. Take a year to learn and grow. All of us, young and old, need to grow in Christ. In this sense, we are all on the same journey of discipleship together. I delight in my journey with you as we grow together in Christ. Let's pray.